grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God stands forever. The word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. We are here this morning studying the word of God. We are studying in life of David. Even though we've gone beyond the life of David, we're into life of Solomon now. But this is the legacy. This is the carry on of of uh, David's life into his son Solomon and the things that are happening in the building of the temple. And because uh, David wanted to build the temple, but he wasn't able to do so. And now Solomon is actually doing that. We're going to get all the way through, like I said, at a bare minimum, we're going to get through the dedication of the temple, the prayer and the dedication of the temple that comes up here pretty soon in First Kings. That's, that's the, at least that far is how, how far we're going to go. And I still haven't decided when we're going to stop and move on. Uh, to another study. And uh, like I said, I'm still working on what comes next. We are going to have some interim studies on uh, eschatology and also uh, how to indeed uh, walk by means of the spirit and uh, function in the spiritual life. We're going to talk about both of those as an interim as interim topics. And then from there, we're going to move on. Now, I have been looking at some books of the Bible that we could, instead of teaching them uh, verse by verse in great detail as we are doing right now in Romans and have done in the past in other books, maybe a book that we could teach on a passage by passage basis. Uh, Right now, as we go through a life of David, we've been doing chapter by chapter. So it's been a large amount covered each week. Uh, but we may we may pick up a book study where we go passage by passage and look at the passages and principles associated with those. So I'm praying about that, but keep keep that lifted up as we go forward. But I already have a couple of things lined up in terms of interim things we're going to work on after Life of David before we get into whatever comes next. Well, before we dive into our Life of David study, let's take a moment for silent prayer. Uh, we need to make sure that we're approaching these these things the right way. So this silent prayer gives us the opportunity to confess sins if needed. Uh, but as I would say, as importantly, after you've confessed your sins and you're in fellowship, we need to humble ourselves so that we might be teachable. Shall we pray? <clears throat> Most gracious And merciful and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for this blessing of being able to gather here at the church. It is such a delight for me to look out and see all the folks here at the church, to look at their faces, smiling faces, their uh, faces that are concerned about different things, whatever might be going on in their lives. I can look out and I can see it in their faces, and it just brings me joy to be here fellowshipping with them, having this time together. We thank you for the truth of your word, the blessing that we all get from your word and its truth. And we ask that as we study your word during this time, you would help us to set aside all the various distractions of life, not think about what we've been doing over the weekend or what we're going to be doing after church or anything else, but focusing our attention in on what it is that you're trying to teach us so that we might learn about you and about our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray all of these things in his most precious and beautiful name. Amen. Well, I'm going to do a quick Uh, review scan across this material in this uh, lesson because this is the one we started last Sunday morning and uh, we're going to finish that one up before moving on to the new material that you have for today. This is all about Solomon building the temple and uh, we start out with there is an alliance formed with King Hiram 
uh, of Tyre, and uh, he was a friend. They were, they, they were, he was definitely close with David, and he had heard about the succession of power to Solomon, and so he wanted to help. And uh, Solomon basically said that he wanted to uh, build the temple, uh, and he wanted to be able to help build the temple, and so uh, takes it off from there that he, he, Solomon actually asked Hiram for cedars, uh, and these cedars, we talked about the fact that these cedars are f- fantastic for construction. The reality of it is uh, the cedars will hold up for a long time without decay. Um, Solomon offered servants to help with the cutting. He wasn't just asking Hiram to do it on his own. He said, I'll send some people to help with the cutting. turns out uh, it was 10,000 uh, at a time, 30,000 total with a three-month rotation. We'll get to that in a minute. And then he offered to pay Hiram's servants, the ones that would be working on that. He mentioned in particular the Sidonians who were very good at at cutting trees. And he said, I'll pay you whatever is a fair wage. So he definitely wanted to work together with Hiram to get that material. Hiram was excited about it. He wanted to provide that lumber. I'm sorry, let me go back. He wanted to provide the lumber for the temple. Um, If you look at when we read that, it was obvious that Hiram knew the Lord. Now, we don't know. This 100% for sure, but it's very possible that he came to know the Lord through David, uh, his association with David, and David was a witness to Hiram, but we don't know exactly how it came about, but it's very possible. He saw Solomon's wisdom already. The very first interaction that Hiram has with Solomon, he recognizes his wisdom, his God-given wisdom, and uh, Hiram actually proposed a way to deliver the lumber by boat. And in fact, the rafts that they were going to make for the lumber were part of the lumber that would be delivered. He was going to build the rafts and send it that way. And then uh, all Hiram asked for was some food for his royal household. And we don't know, by the way, why. We don't know. In the text, it doesn't say <clears throat> there was a famine or they were struggling or there was a, some problem getting food. What we know is that he asked for food. And we can kind of infer from that that something was going on where they needed food, and that's all he asked for. He was enthusiastically willing to help uh, the project, but he asked for food for his household. So they entered into an agreement, and both men fulfilled the terms of that agreement. The Hiram delivered the, both cedar and cypress. Uh, the cypress wasn't mentioned before, but cypress was delivered as part of it. And Solomon delivered the food. Not only did he deliver it uh, initially, but he kept on delivering it for years, uh, for years. And it was a peaceful relationship, uh, relationship between Israel and Tyre for many, many, many years. Solomon recruited laborers. Again, this is all review from last week. So uh, if this is going fast, I apologize, but we're just reviewing. Uh, Solomon recruited laborers to prepare materials for the temple. As I said, there were three shifts of, of 10,000 men each who were sent to Lebanon to help cut the lumber. And so they would be in Lebanon for a month, and then they'd be back home for for two months. There were 150,000 men working on cutting and transporting the stone. I mean, you can only imagine that was a big deal. Now, interestingly, I didn't talk about this, but the stone that they were... The stone that they were they, they were pulling they were in, from the quarry, that stone is pretty interesting stone, and it's actually not that dissimilar from the limestone that we have here in Texas. And it's interesting because when you first pull the stone from the quarry, it actually is pretty easy to cut. But then after you take the stone and you put the stone out and you let it be exposed to the elements, it actually hardens. It becomes actually harder and more difficult to cut. So what they were doing is they were actually 
pulling the stone from the quarry and cutting it right then and right there, and then they were transporting it already cut. And there were, there were a couple of reasons for that. Remember, we looked at how Solomon didn't want them out there working at the temple site, cutting and making all this noise with all their tools, but because he considered the site holy. But beyond all of that, it was easier for them to cut the stone from the site. There were also 3,300 foremen. Uh, wow. Uh, so, I mean, I, it almost seems like the situation, like uh, that's so many foremen, it almost seems like that would be overkill, but I guess not, not with that many workers involved. Uh, but, but man, I, I mean, I'm trying to think of how many bosses there are at my job. Uh, if there were this many bosses, it would be really bad. I'm glad we don't have that many bosses. Uh, by Solomon's command, the stones were cut for the temple foundation. Um, oh, I'm sorry, let me go back. Uh, some men of Gebal, uh, along with Solomon's and Hiram's craftsmen, did the final preparation of the stones and the lumber for the temple. And I put a picture in here to show, and it's hard for you to see, but you can see it better in your notes. Here's Tyre up here, Sidon, right? These are the ones who were going to help uh, with the cutting as well. And Gabal is up further on the coast, and some of them participated as well. And by the way, um, you know, Solomon mentioned the Sidonians. He said, you know, I know that they're fantastic cutters. And not only that, we can infer that apparently Hiram had been working with the Sidonians in harvesting the timber in the past. But he didn't even mention anything about these, these folks, and yet they came down and participated in the process as well. This uh, picture shows this is how they would transport the lumber uh, from Tyre out to the sea on the rafts, and then it would come in. They estimated it was a Joppa, that it would come in and then brought down to Jerusalem. And then the, gr- the greenish line over here, that's supposed to represent uh, how they would bring the stones, the quarrying of the stones and then bringing them down. Yes. No, no, Tyre, Tyre is up north of, of Israel, but I would say it's, uh, I don't know if it's Syria or not. That's a good question. I actually don't know the answer to that. Yeah, yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure, but it's actually, it's, uh, it's obvious. It's, 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 it's totally different. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not part of Israel. Yeah, well, the, the, the cedars of Lebanon were being harvested, though, if you go back and look. They were going up here to do the harvesting. And so whether that's actually in the same, I don't know the answer as to whether or not that's in the same uh, deal or not. But, but if the fact of the matter is, it, actually, it probably is part of During the empire of David and Solomon, it's Phoenicia. Uh, yeah, Phoenicia at the time. She's talking about modern. Yeah. In modern day, what is that part of? But it might, be, it might be that it encompasses Lebanon as well. That's very possible. Very possible. Which, by the way, if you know anything about Lebanon, Lebanon is a tragic story, actually. I mean, the Lebanese people were... Very, very, very strong Christian nation, actually, until recently. And there's been devastation there, persecution of the Christians and all sorts of things have gone on in Lebanon. If you don't know about that, that's something to study. It's a pretty sad story, actually. Oops, sorry, I keep going too fast. Um, Verse 1, now we get to the next section here. In the fourth year of Solomon's reign, the building of the temple begins. Uh, verse one is very important. We're doing a couple of chapters here, by the way, because they all kind of flow together. Verse one is very important because it establishes firm dates in Israel's history. The time of Solomon's reign is well established and the fourth year of his reign was 966 BC. As I mentioned, I say BC, not BCE. I say BC. 
before Christ. This verse states that the Exodus took place 480 years earlier, which would be 1446 B.C. This verse actually helps us pinpoint exactly when the Exodus happened. You might think, well, isn't that easy to do? No, actually, it takes a lot of work to figure out exact timelines and associate everything and how it was all put together. But this verse, verse 1 of 1 Kings chapter 6, actually gives us a definitive answer as to when the Exodus actually took place. And so it's pretty cool. That's an important verse in in chronology. Uh, Then we had some information about the temple itself. And we're going to see that it's not very big. Solomon's temple is not very big. It's 90 feet long, 30 feet wide, and 45 feet high. Vaulted ceilings, right? Very high ceilings, but it's not very big. 90 feet long, 30 feet wide. Uh, I talked about the fact that a cubit is roughly 18 inches or one and a half feet. And Solomon's temple was relatively small. And then there's a porch, a portico on the temple that added 15 more feet to its length. I want to see, let me see if I can pull this up in my Bible software here. Give me a moment. Um, hey, look, it's all caps. How about that? I bet it'll still find it. Let's see. Uh, let's see. Why is it not finding that? Let's try it in lowercase. Well, I know I had a I had a, a document. Oh, in your documents, I'm sorry. All resources. There we go. Uh, yeah, this is a pretty cool one here. Let's bring this one up. All right. Let me make it full screen for you. A reason I'm bringing this up is because we, uh, if you've been doing the Bible reading, we just recently were reading about Ezekiel's temple. Uh, we were reading through Ezekiel 40 through 47, which talks about Ezekiel's temple. All right, this is just to give you an idea for you. For you, uh, they dumbed it down for us Americans, right? <laughs> this is an American football field, and this is not the overall area. This is the actual football field itself, just the field. Inbounds, 100 by 50 yards. That's the size of Solomon's temple. It's smaller than a football field. Uh, this is the size of the tabernacle. Tabernacle was tiny, right? So here's the size. Here's the size of the Solomon's temple. And then one of the questions that came up last week is, was that the temple at the time of Christ? No, it was not. The temple at the time of Christ was Herod's temple, and that gives you an idea how big it is. So it was much bigger. Herod's temple was much bigger. But look at Ezekiel's temple thing is massive it's massive and it's actually it's the, this is the millennial temple by the way and it's actually it's actually uh some people talk about it well it's crazy uh that cannot be the size of that temple because it's larger than the surface at the top of the mount where it's going to be constructed uh if you've ever studied the scriptures don't you know that when christ returns in the second advent he actually changes the geography of the land there's going to be mountains split in two. There's all going to be all kinds of geographical changes. So is it, is it not feasible that this could be built on top of the mount? Absolutely, it could be built on top of the mount. But this is amazing to look at the size differences. I thought it, just, it would be something that would help you guys see. Um, Solomon's temple is really a tiny little building. It's very small. So it's kind of interesting. I thought that was fascinating. Um, all right. Uh, there were three stories of side rooms built around the main building. Uh, We looked at that on the graphic. There were windows in the main building, apparently above those side rooms. 
Maybe I could bring that back up again. Let me see. Um, that might be nice to do. I would have had this all up, by the way, but believe it or not, I walked away from the I walked away from the house this morning without my thumb drive. So everything you're seeing here is stuff that I pulled down from a backup that I have on the uh, on in the cloud. Oh, my software is spinning there, isn't it? Well, I was going to bring. Okay, here we go. Let's see. In media, I had a. Wow, my software is acting up. Um, let's see. There was a really cool graphic that I had last time that I was using. Oh, goodness. Okay. Well, let me not do this. Let me not do whatever this is. Let's see. Yeah, it brought up a full study guide here. I had a really cool graphic thing that we were using last week. I was going to try to see if I could find that again. I think it was this one. I think it was this one. Maybe my software will cooperate now. Maybe not. <laughs> so, <laughs> technology. I don't like it. <laughs> it's it's amazing, but it's also annoying, isn't it? All right. This is uh, this was the interactive deal that we had here, and you can see these are the these are the side rooms around the side of it here. You've got the uh, you've got the main part of the temple. You've got the portico here. In the next chapter, we're going to get to these other things: the uh, the basins, the labors. The but this is de- this is describing right here these side rooms that are around the side of the temple itself. And by the way, I looked at a number of things that's used for that was used for storage. It was used for certain things that they would do in terms of of um, uh, preparing for. Worship. There were all sorts of things that the priests would do in these rooms that were around the temple. They were they were used. It was multi-use. They were used for all sorts of things. And uh, you know, obviously, the area around the temple itself, you would you know, you wouldn't want to the things that they would do in in those side rooms. You wouldn't want to do in the temple proper. You know, in the holy place or the or the the holy of holies. You wouldn't want to do those inside there. So they had they stored things. They did preparation there. They had all sorts of things they would do in these side rooms. All right. And then the main building contained the holy place and the holy of holies. In our text, it's described as the nave or the inner sanctuary. Uh, And you can see that uh, in here. uh, You can see the breakdown of it. You have, this is what they would call the nave. Uh, This is the holy place, as it's described elsewhere. And then over here on the left, you have the smaller area, which was the holy of holies. Or the most holy place, so that would be that would be how that would work. Sure. Well, no, 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 no. The tabernacle, no, the the ark of the covenant was carried on two sticks. The tabernacle was actually carried. It took a lot of people to carry the tabernacle because that was a whole bunch of stuff. But no, the, but the tabernacle was portable. All right, so I want you to think about. I'm glad you brought that up. Actually, I'm really glad you brought that up because think about this for a second. Think about the state of the situation with the people of Israel 
right? For, for a long period of time, every, things were somewhat in flux, right? There was a, definitely a period of flux. They were always being, the Philistines would always bother them. There were always, there was always all kinds of different issues. The people of Israel were always in a state of flux. So God, in his wisdom, gave them a place of worship, which was the tabernacle, which was portable, so they could move it as they needed to. Depending on what was going on, they could move the tabernacle around. Well, now, finally under Solomon, they find themselves in a period of relative peace, rest. So the nation is, for lack of a better way to say it, the nation is actually able to kind of settle in a little bit, right? They're able to settle in and settle down a little bit. And so it's the perfect time. That's what God told David is that it would be the perfect time for them to build a temple which would be stationary. I'd right? be in Jerusalem. It wouldn't be portable so that it would be in a fixed place because the nation itself was finally able to sort of settle down and settle in. And so it made sense that that was the right time to build a permanent fixture, a temple building, instead of having it be portable. So uh, I'm glad you brought that up because it reminded me to talk about that. All right. Uh, the materials uh, for the temple, as we were talking about, were assembled elsewhere. They were, the stones were pre-cut at the quarry. I talked about why that was. The lumber was actually pre-cut and fitted as well. And for those of you who weren't here last week, I talked about the log cabin that Terry and I used to live in. And that log cabin was actually, uh, uh, the lumber actually came from up in Montana. It was lodgepole pine from up in Montana. And the company that we, we worked with, Real Log Homes, they cut the lumber, they milled it, they got it all uh, done, and they actually built our cabin up at their site. They built the whole thing. And then they, they took and they, they numbered each of the logs. We had literally, it was like a, it was like a paint by number kind of thing, right? The, the logs were numbered so you knew exactly where they went. So they had already pre-constructed it. So when they shipped it down here and my brother built the cabin, it was already, we knew it was going to work, right? It was all going to fit together because they'd already done it. That's kind of the idea here. Everything was already done where when they got to the site, it was already ready to go. They just put it in place. They didn't have to, they didn't have to get out there and do any adjustments. They just put it together. I mean, that's pretty amazing if you think about it. Uh, the idea of not making all the noise, right? He didn't want, he didn't want there to be noise at the site. Uh, it shows that he had reverence for this project. He did not want it to be a noisy construction site. And like I said, if you've ever been around a construction site, I mean, right now, this is, this is not a direct analogy, but right now they're doing some road construction over by our house. And you cannot believe the noise. You cannot believe it. I mean, literally, they have this one vehicle. I'm not sure exactly what that booger does, but when it comes rolling by, it shakes the entire house. Right. And they are making noise. They're digging and scratching and making noise all the time. So you can only imagine for a temple construction project, how noisy would that place be? And so he did not want it to be like that. So he wanted them to pre-cut everything elsewhere and then bring it ready to be put together. I think that shows his his uh, his reverence for it. Uh, the three floors of the side rooms were connected by a winding stairways uh, and they were attached to the main buildings with timber of cedar. Um, the temple faced east. Uh, the doorway to the side rooms was actually on the south side. And then so what, if you wanted to go into the side rooms, you would go in on the south side of the temple and then you make your way up to the other floors and you could make your way all around. They, you know, they were connected all the way around uh, on the three sides, right? Because they, they were not, they were not, it was not around the east side where the entrance was. Um, the cedar beams that attached the side rooms did not go inside the main building. And I'm not sure exactly how that worked, but there were 
uh, on the main construction of the temple, there were uh, there were timbers that were brought out such that they could attach the side rooms without having to put wood, any kind of beams inside the building. And part of that was so that the walls of the inside building would be perfectly smooth and so on. Again, I think it was all in the entrance, interest of representing God's holiness in that they didn't want anything to defile the room. So uh, they, they built it that way. Now, the, <clears throat> the promise that we looked at... Uh, a promise during the construction of the temple, God reaffirmed to Solomon the promise he had made to David. Uh, the promise was to establish the throne of David's kingdom forever, and he would certainly fulfill that promise through Christ. It's, go, it's, it's going to happen. And then uh, he promised Solomon fellowship and protection if Solomon obeyed the Lord. Now, see, there's a so there's a promise. The, the Davidic covenant, the Davidic promise made is unconditional, as I mentioned last week. So, so what do they have to do to fulfill that? Nothing. It's, a, it's an unconditional promise. There's nothing they do. However, there's blessing associated with the Davidic covenant. And the blessing is conditional, right? If, they, if Solomon were to obey, there would be blessing that would be associated with that. If Solomon did not, and we know ultimately he, he fails later in his life, but that uh, he would not have that same kind of fellowship and protection later in his life. All right, so the inside of the temple was covered with cedar and cypress wood. Walls were made of cedar and the floor was overlaid with cypress. Uh, as we talked about earlier, you saw the Holy of Holies. It was 30 feet long. A holy place itself, that's the nave, the outer, the outer or the inner. Let's see, what are they, how do they call it? The nave and the inner sanctuary. The Holy of Holies is the, is the inner sanctuary. And the nave or the holy place is, is the, uh, what, what it would be 60 feet long, so twice as big. Now, there was a lot of things that they did in the, in the nave or the holy place year-round. If you think about it, there was activity year-round in the, in the holy place or the nave area once a year, right? Once a year, someone would go into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. Once a year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies. So it only makes sense that you needed more space for the holy place where a lot of the activity would take place throughout the year. Cedar covered the entire walls and had... Uh, carvings of gourds and flowers. Now, there, the mention, part of the reason I pointed that out is because there was mention of stone being used for the foundation, but there was also references to the idea of stone being used for the construction of the walls as well. But on the inside, <clears throat> completely overlaid with cedar. So you wouldn't see any of the stone. They're completely overlaid with cedar, and the floors were overlaid with the cypress. So it was completely overlaid with wood on the inside. And then obviously, <clears throat> there were carvings made in there as well. Uh, now, the inside of the Holy of Holies was overlaid with pure gold. Uh, the Ark of the Covenant would be placed inside the Holy of Holies. We're going to get to that uh, in chapter 8, I think it is. We're going to get to that. Uh, gold chains were drawn across the front of the Holy of Holies, and the altar of incense was placed just outside. It was also overlaid with gold. Uh, there's an altar... There's another altar that's outside the whole structure. It's outside the um, it's outside the temple proper in every regard. Uh, that's a, that's a different altar. The altar we're talking about here, the altar that uh, that was just outside the holy of holies. That's the altar of incense, which is inside the temple. <clears throat> Pardon me, my voice is getting scratchy here. Uh, two. This is the last thing we looked at last week. Two cherubim were fashioned and placed in the Holy of Holies. The cherubim were 15 feet tall and made of olive wood. 
The wings of the cherubim stretched all the way across the Holy of Holies. And these cherubim were also overlaid with gold. And I think, yeah, you can see those inside here. I wish I could expand. There we go. I can expand it a little bit. You can see the cherubim over here. And a question came up last week about the depiction of the cherubim and why they looked like that. And that's not described here in this chapter, but it's described elsewhere. But you can see the wings. This one goes from the wall to the wing of the other cherubim and all the way to the other wall. So, uh, and you can kind of see a little bit of the, the, art, the, the artistic work that was done on the walls as well depicted in this. Well, maybe you can see that. <laughs> I don't know if you can see it from where you all are sitting. All right. Uh, this, is, uh, this is new material. The temple walls and floor were finished and doors were added in verses 29 through 35. We should probably make this a little smaller. Here we go. All right. Then he carved all, he carved all the walls of the house round about with carved engravings of, the, of cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers, inner and outer sanctuaries. Excuse me. He overlaid the floor of the house with gold, inner and outer sanctuaries. For the entrance of the inner sanctuary, he made doors of olive wood, the lintel and five-sided doorposts. So he made two doors of olive wood and he carved on them the carvings of cherubim, palm trees and open flowers and overlaid them with gold. And he spread the gold on the cherubim and on the palm trees. He also made <clears throat> so he also made for the entrance of the nave four sided doorposts of olive wood and two doors of cypress wood. Uh, the two leaves of the, of the one turned on pivots and the two leaves of the other t- door turned on pivots. He carved on it cherubim, palm trees and open flowers and he overlaid them with gold, evenly applied on the engraved work. So you can imagine just how amazingly beautiful this whole thing was. I mean, it just had to be stunning uh, to see all of this. Whoops, sorry. Again, the walls were decorated with carvings, and the floor was overlaid with gold. Uh, the olive wood, uh, the doors of olive wood were made for the Holy of Holies. Now, interestingly, uh, as I mentioned, the cedar and the cypress came from Lebanon, and, and I'm, we're just going to have to assume that the olive wood was something that they could get right there locally. They didn't have to go find that. They had olive wood there in Israel, and they just harvested their own olive wood for the making of the doors. Um, Doorposts of olive wood and doors of cypress were made for the holy place itself. So the doors to the holy of holies were made of olive wood, but on the into the entrance of the nave or the holy place, there were doorposts of olive wood and doors made out of cypress for the entrance into the holy place. So this is an amazing structure. Part of what you want to get out of this is it's amazing. And all the carvings, the palm trees, the open flowers, the cherubim, all the different things that were carved into it, all of it, again, is intricate and beautiful, and all of it is a testimony uh, to God and who he is. It's all supposed to be representative of that. Sorry. Uh, A wall was constructed for the inner courtyard that surrounded the temple. He built the inner court with three rows of cut stone and a row of cedar beams. So what that inner court, that's the area around the building itself, right? There's an inner court and an outer court. And the inner court had a wall around it. When it says he built the inner court, it was formed because of the wall that was put around it. And that wall was three rows of cut stone and a row of cedar beams. So it was stone and wood. Uh, This was the courtyard of the priests. It was, it was indeed surrounded by the outer courtyard, as I mentioned. Second Chronicles 4.9 says, Then he made the court of the priests and the great court and doors for the court and overlaid their doors with bronze. So you have the court of the priests, that's the inner court, 
and then you have the outer court. And what would happen is when someone would come in to the temple area, they would come into the outer court. That's where they would enter in, and then they would bring their sacrifices or whatever else they would have, and they would be in the great court or the outer court, and then the inner court uh, was where the priests would be. Uh, Of course, this wall then separated those two courtyards, and then all in all, the construction of the temple building itself uh, took seven and a half years to complete, and that's at the end of chapter 6. Uh, in the fourth year, the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid in the month of Ziv. Uh, in the eleventh year, in the month of Ul, which is uh, the eighth month, the house was finished throughout all its parts and according to its plans. So he was seven years in building it. And actually, if you look at the months and you add it all up, it was actually seven and a half years. Because of when it was started, in the month that it was started, and in the month when it, when it was finished, it was seven and a half years to build the temple. That's... Actually, if you think about it, that's actually pretty amazing because it might take seven and a half years for them to do our road in front of our house. Um, And yet these guys are building a temple. And what what kind of tools were they working with? I mean, did they have did they have these big, gigantic pieces of equipment that they were using? No, they didn't have that. Now, I'm not saying they were primitive by any means. These people were, were very intelligent wise people, but they didn't have the kind of equipment that we have today to build this thing, and yet they constructed the temple in seven and a half years. That's pretty astounding, actually. Well, we hadn't gotten to that yet. Yeah, more, uh, yeah, his palace took even longer. All right, so we're going to get to that, actually. That's what you should have for your new notes for today. Uh, let's see if I have it up yet. I don't know if I do or not. Let's see. Yeah, there we go. All right. So your new notes for today, I call it the completion of the temple. But actually, the chapter, chapter 7, starts with uh, Solomon building his palace. So, uh, but the main theme of this chapter is the, is the completion of the temple. Uh, Solomon had his palace built along with other associated buildings, verses 1 through 12. The palace complex took 13 years to build much longer than the temple. Uh, so Solomon was building his, his, his own house 13 years, and he finished all his house. So the temple took seven and a half years, and his house took 13. Now, I think there's a couple of reasons for that. First of all, as you'll see when we get to the dimensions, his palace is bigger than the temple. Uh, and it's not just a simple building. It's a palace complex. There's actually more than one building there. Uh, but but even beyond that, I think uh, there was also an urgency with regard to building the temple, and maybe not as much with regard to building his palace. Uh, the temple was important. So, uh, Solomon wanted to make sure that that got built, uh, but the palace itself, maybe not as critical, but it's also a bigger complex. The palace was 150 feet by 75 feet, much larger than the temple, which, as we saw, was 90 feet by 30 feet. So his palace is, is a larger structure. Uh, the palace, like the temple, was adorned with cedar wood from Lebanon. We see that here in the text. It talks about the size of the building, and it goes on. Its height was 30 cubits on four rows of cedar pillars with cedar beams on, its, on the pillars. It was paneled with cedar above the side chambers, which were on the 45 pillars, 15 in each row. So it was, it was built in a similar construction manner to the uh, temple. Solomon built a hall of justice as well as a home for his wife, Pharaoh's daughter. 
we come on through this, let's read on down through. Uh, there were artistic window frames in three rows, and window, uh, window was opposite window in three ranks. All the doors, doorways and doorposts had squared artistic frames, and window was opposite window in three ranks. Then he made the hall of pillars. Its length was 50 cubits, and its width 30 cubits, and a porch was in front of them, and pillars and a threshold in front of them. Then, verse 7 says, He made the hall of the throne where he was to judge, the hall of judgment, and it was paneled with cedar from floor to floor. His house where he was to live, the, uh, the other court inward from the hall, was of the same workmanship. So everything's made of the same kind of workmanship. And then at the end of verse 8, it says, He also made a house like this hall for Pharaoh's daughter, whom Solomon had married. So we know for sure that there's three structures here. There's Solomon's palace, there's a hall that's going to be the hall of justice, if you will, and then there's the building for Pharaoh's daughter, the, the woman that he married. Now, we don't know the size of either of those buildings. We have no idea the size of either of those buildings. We just know his palace is 100 by 75. So um, the idea is this is a whole complex of building. Like the temple, pre-cut stone was used for the foundation and the walls of these buildings, so it's all very similar construction. Um, all of these, all these were of costly stones, of stone cut according to measure, sawed with saws, inside and outside, even from the foundation to the coping, and so on the outside to the great court. Uh, the foundation. There was also a court, a court around his his palace complex. Foundation was of costly stones, even large stones, stones of ten cubits and stones of eight cubits. Imagine that. That's fifteen feet, right, by twelve feet, right? A fifteen foot stone and a twelve foot stone. That's massive. And above were costly stones, stones cut, uh, stone cut according to measure, and cedar. So that's pretty incredible what, what they made the building out of. The courtyard uh, around the palace complex had a wall like the one around the temple, very similar. And this is the last of what we hear about his complex. So the great court all around had three rows of cut stone and a row of cedar beams, even as the inner court of the house of the Lord and the porch of the house. Now, we don't know for sure exactly where, uh, where this was constructed. Uh, interestingly, in archaeology, they've found uh, evidence of where the temple was, but there's no evidence of this palace complex that hasn't been found. But it was, it's believed uh, by most of the writings of the rabbis, etc., it's believed that this palace complex was not very far from the temple complex, that it was all right there in a, in a close proximity. But again, we don't know that for sure. Uh, but you could almost imagine uh, how that would be prudent in terms of the construction process, right? If he's having the materials brought in for the buildings, it would be nice if you, just, if you already had the logistics set up to bring the materials in. It would be nice to just build the palace complex right there uh, next to the, the temple complex as well. But, you know, and the reality of it is we don't know for sure where it was located. What do you mean? Uh, huge stones. Yeah. Huge yeah, gigantic stones. Yeah, well, they think about how they had to transport those. I mean, that took, took them a while to transport that. It's pretty amazing. Uh, Solomon recruited Hiram of Tyre to work in the temple. This is uh, an interesting section here. Very important. Uh, this Hiram is a skilled craftsman and not the king. And by, in fact, in the Hebrew, uh, in the Hebrew, in some of the manuscripts, it's Huram instead of Hiram. 
And so he might actually have had a different name, but some, uh, most of the manuscripts actually have Hiram, but some of them have Huram. But nonetheless, we know this is not the king. This is not the king of Tyre. This is, uh, this is a skilled craftsman. He was skilled in doing work in bronze. If we go to this section... Um, Okay, you're going to be like that, are you? All right. King Solomon sent and brought Hiram from Tyre. He was a widow's son from the tribe of Naphtali, and his father was a man of Tyre, a worker in bronze. And he was filled with wisdom and understanding and skill for doing any work in bronze. So he came to King Solomon and performed all his work. Now, first of all, that's one of the reasons why we know this is not the king. Because there was no need to describe who the king was, and this is not the king's lineage, and so on and so forth. So we know that this is someone else. But he has the same name, at least as far as this goes. Uh, widow's son from the tribe of Naphtali. Uh, father was a man of Tyre, worker in bronze. And so he basically learned the skill from his dad. And that's not uncommon. It's not uncommon today. It wasn't uncommon back then. Right? His father was a worker in bronze, and he learned the skill. And so he became a, a, a craftsman who could work in bronze. So he built, first, the first thing he did is he built two huge bronze, bronze pillars over 35, excuse me, over 34 feet high, including the capitals, which is what the deals that go up on top. I'll read those verses, verses 15 through 20. Sorry, come on, cooperate with me now. It's not cooperating with me. He fashioned two pillars of bronze. 18 cubits was the height of one pillar, and a line of 12 cubits measured the circumference of both, which is, that's huge. He also made two capitals of molten bronze to set on the top of the pillars. The height of the one capital was five cubits, and the height of the other capital was five cubits. There were nets of network and twisted threads of chain work for the capitals, which were on top of the pillars, seven for the one capital and seven for the other capital. So he made the pillars and two rows around the one network to cover the capitals, which were on the top of the pomegranates, and so he did for the other capital. The capitals, which were on the top of the pillars in the porch, were of lily design, four cubits. There were capitals on the two pillars, even above and close to the round projection, which was beside the network, and the pomegranates numbered 200 in rows around both capitals. Now, this construction, by the way, I can take you to this, uh, this deal here. Let's see. These are the pillars that he built. Right? These are the ones that he built. And so they're, they're actually rather large. And um, they were named Jachin and Boaz. Uh, they were erected on either side of the temple portico, which is what you just saw. They're located right here. This, is, this one is actually uh, Jachin. And this one on the other side is Boaz. And, so, and, and part of what you have there is the names themselves uh, mean something. Uh, if we look at the text in 21 and 22, thus he set up the pillars at the porch of the nave or the portico uh, of the nave, and he set up the right pillar and named it Joaquin. Now that means he shall establish, right? God is going to establish the temple. And he set up the left pillar and named it Boaz, and that it, it says in it his strength, and it actually means in the strength of, in the, strength of the Lord, right? The temple will be established and it'll be in the strength of the Lord that it will be established. So the names had meaning. It wasn't just that he was naming them after his sons or something. He named them something that meant something. On the top of the pillars was a lily design. So the work of the pillars was finished. Now, as I'm reading through this, I, I realized as I was reading through all of this, I'm, 
I'm making kind of an assumption in this, and maybe that assumption's not a good one. But are all of you kind of familiar with the construction of the tabernacle itself? The detail of the tabernacle and all the different things that were mentioned in regard to the construction of the tabernacle. If you do know these things, if you're familiar somewhat with the construction of the tabernacle itself, then some of this is going to sound familiar. When they're building the temple, they're doing some things that are very similar to the way the tabernacle was put together. And so this is not just, they're not just coming up with these ideas willy-nilly. It's not just something that they thought, well, this will look real pretty. Let's do that. It was actually patterned after the design of the way the tabernacle was constructed. And so the different things with the pomegranates and the networks and the different things that were all put together, it's all, it all fits into the design of the tabernacle itself. And so uh, this, is, this is not just a random design. This is, this is building the temple in the style of the tabernacle. We'll finish with uh, a couple of things here, and then we'll go to our scripture of the week. Uh, Hiram then built a large bronze wet reservoir, a sea, that held 11,500 gallons of water. Uh, yeah, that's pretty big. It says now he... What's that? Yeah. Now he made the sea of cast metal, 10 cubits from brim to brim, circular in form, and its height was 5 cubits and 30 cubits in circumference. Under its brim gourds were, excuse me, under its brim gourds went around encircling it 10 to a cubit, completely surrounding the sea. The gourds were in two rows cast with the rest. It stood on, the, on 12 oxen, three facing north, three facing west, three facing south, and three facing east. And the sea was set on top of them, and all their rear parts turned inward. That's a nice way of saying it. Um, Verse 26, it was a handbreadth thick and its brim was made like the brim of a cup as a lily blossom. It could, tol- it could hold 2,000 baths and that turns into over 11,000 gallons of water. Now that is, this thing here is gigantic. Now you can see down there, these are, the, these are the animals, right? Facing the different directions and here it is on top and it's just massive. This is to give you an idea how big it is. This over here is, a, is the size of a man right there, right? So the, this was a gigantic thing that he built, the sea. Now, by the way, there's some question. You said it was out of brass. Bronze. Wow. Yeah, out of bronze. So uh, interestingly, interestingly uh, there's some question. We haven't gotten to the labors yet. We will. These are the labors over here, these smaller ones. And there's five on the south side and five on the north side. And some of the commentaries that I read talked about these being uh, the lavers that the priests would wash themselves in uh, prior to doing certain things. But the best analysis of it that I could find is actually this large one was used by the priests. And it was water that was kept strictly for that, that they would wash. Remember, they would wash their hands, they washed their feet, they would prepare themselves before they did any, any of their priestly service. And the best scholarship that I could find said that this one was the one that the priests used and these labors over here were actually used in more of a uh, uh, utilitarian way for washing the entrails of the animals that they had slaughtered and things of that nature. So you wouldn't want to mix the two, right? You wouldn't want to have them mixed together. And you're going to find out when we get to this, these are actually mobile. These are on wheels. They could actually move them around inside that area, inside this, uh, this inner courtyard area. But this one, I believe, is the one that was actually primarily used by the priests to clean themselves. 
But all of this, if you look at all of the details of all of this, it's part of the reason we're going through this is great pains were taken to build this temple, not only again in accordance with the what had been given for the tabernacle itself, but in a way that that everything was done to create an environment here that was intended to glorify God. I mean, there's they could I mean, they think about it for a second. They could have slapped up some uh, some pine two by fours and put up some plywood on the outside. And, and you know what I mean? You could have thrown together a building that would have been an enclosure where they could have done their worship. You know, I mean, look at the building that we're in, right? We're in a building that is fairly basic in terms of its construction. I love it. Don't get me wrong. I love, I love this building that we have here, but we didn't go to these kind of great details to have all of these I mean, we didn't overlay the walls with gold. Uh, we, we haven't done all of these things, but you've got to remember, for Israel, they were, they were constructing this building as a central place of worship. You've got to, let's, I'm trying to give you an equivalent to this. Imagine for a second that all of central Texas went to a single building. Some, it wouldn't be in Austin. But it, <laughs> let's just propose for a second that it's sort of central to central Texas. It's somewhere over there. But there's this one building where we would go to worship. And if you think about it, if we, if we as a body of believers had a single building that we were going to go to to worship, that building would probably be constructed in a way that was amazing and had great detail to it that was intended. Every bit of it was intended to glorify the Lord. Well, that's what we have here. This is their single building that they're building. And, and again, all the detail that's put into this and all these things that we're reading about, keep it in mind, it's intended to be something that's going to highlight the glory of God. Yes. Yeah. St. Peter's Cathedral you're talking about? Yeah. that would, In Rome. Yeah. That would be something modern equivalent to that, right? That would be the idea, right? That you would have something that would be people would gather there for worship and that kind of thing. And if you could, by the way, if you go over to Europe and you see some of the churches, even just some of the churches all around, I mean, I went and visited a church uh, in Ukraine that was stunning, you know, absolutely stunning. And, and that, that was something, again, even in, even in those times when those churches were built, people would come together to a single building, right? It, it, it wasn't like it is now where you got a church here and a church right down there and a church right down there and a church right down there. It wasn't like that. So, but this was also a place, as we're going to see, that God himself was going to make his presence known within this temple building through the Shekinah glory. And so this is a, this is a very special place that's being built. And so great pains are being taken to make sure that it's built in a way that glorifies God. And, that, and not only that, but that when people come to it and they see it and they, and they witness what's there at the temple, that it will be glorifying to God as part of their worship. Does that make sense? So that's why we're examining all the detail. And part of the reason I wanted to go through all of this, and we'll get to the furnishings as we go further through this chapter next week, you, you get to eventually what happens in terms of the dedication of the temple itself and what it meant to the people of Israel, how significant it was to the people of Israel and Solomon's prayer and the dedication itself, uh, which is a pretty, pretty amazing thing to contemplate. So we'll get to that uh, next week, Lord willing, and the rapture pending. Take a look at our scripture of the week. Let's read this one together. This is, every, this is everybody's favorite verse, I think. Uh, maybe not. <laughs> 
I don't think people have this one on their refrigerators, uh, but let's read it anyway. It's a wonderful verse. Hebrews 12, 11. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. All right. So there's a couple of things important in this. This is the section actually, I'm, you know, I didn't highlight the whole thing, but this is the section where we learn that, you know, what kind of a father doesn't discipline his child? You know, and what kind of a child are you? You're not, you're not even a legitimate son if you're not being disciplined. Boy, we need a, we got a country full of people who need to read this chapter. Uh, for, it says, furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Uh, shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live for they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. Right. So that's the context of this. And then it says all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful. I know about, I don't know about you, but when I got disciplined as a child, it wasn't a particularly joyful thing for me. Right. I mean, I was I had all sorts of discipline, by the way. Everything from the belt on my backside, to use the language they use here, right? My belt on my backside to, um, I was literally put in the corner, facing the corner. I don't know if you ever had that happen to you, but I, I literally was in the corner. I, in my case, I was actually not on my knees. I was actually on a stool. I was sitting on a stool facing the corner, and I had to stay there and look at the corner. Uh, I had, uh, I was isolated in my room, which that wasn't particularly good punishment, uh, because I was fine with that. But so, but, uh, but you know, that, that was the way there was different forms of discipline. But I mean, I can tell you, you know, when I was being disciplined, it wasn't joyful. It was not a joyful thing for me at all. And that's the way it is for us today as believers being disciplined by the father. When we're disciplined, it's not, it doesn't seem like a joyful thing. We're under his hand of discipline. It says even not to be joyful, but sorrowful. But remember, a godly sorrow can bring about repentance, right? So discipline, which brings about sorrow, is intended to bring about repentance or a change of mind, if you understand repentance, change of mind. In other words, you stop your bad behavior, right? And uh, this, is a, this is a grace thing. I'm here to tell you, it's a, it's a love thing and it's a grace thing because... We are disciplined by God when we wander off the path, right? We are supposed to be following along the path that God has for us to go on. And when we wander off to the left, and you, you read the Old Testament scriptures, you'll read that. You, you, you venture to the left or to the right. I mean, in fact, Israel, when they would go through a land, they would promise, we'll go straight through, we won't go to the left, and we won't go to the right, right? That's what they promised. They weren't going to venture off into trouble. And we as believers wander off into trouble. We do it, and so we, uh, we, are, we should be thankful that God's discipline brings us back to where we're supposed to be. Honestly, I'm going to be honest with you, there are times in all of our Christian walks, every one of us, where we begin to wander off the path and we don't even really quite realize it. If you've ever, if you've ever heard preaching on this idea, you can actually just gradually kind of you know, get a little bit off the path. And in the process of that, how would you ever know if it were not for the loving hand of God's discipline going, no, 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 you're, you're going the wrong way. You're not doing the right thing. Because sometimes we don't even realize. We don't even realize that we've gotten off the path. 
Then it goes on. This is one of the things I love about this verse. Yet to those who have been trained by it. How do we get trained in this life? Well, training comes in many forms. I pray to the Lord that right now you're being trained by the preaching of the word. That the word of God itself is training you. That's what's supposed to happen as we learn the things of the word of God. Testing trains us. When we're tested, it trains us. But this verse in particular is the best verse I can find in the scriptures for pointing out directly that discipline trains us. Again, it's not particularly joyful. But I can't, if you can, remember this. I always tell you there's a reason why we have these scriptures of the week. If you can remember Hebrews 12, 11, great. That's fantastic. But if you can't remember that, try to remember Hebrews chapter 12. And Hebrews chapter 12 is the one that talks about discipline. And it talks about being trained by discipline. And if you can't remember Hebrews chapter 12, just remember Hebrews. right? It's somewhere in Hebrews, and I promise you, you'll find it. But trained by discipline. Trained by discipline. Now, the discipline, that, the discipline that's being talked about here is discipline that's in the form of corrective discipline. You know, if you think about discipline, we use that word a lot of ways. Discipline can be, you know, if you, for example, if you join the military and you go through boot camp, you're going to be, you're going to have discipline. It's going to be forced on you. Discipline's going to be forced on you, right? And there's training there too, right? I probably, I could have used some of that when I was young, by the way. Uh, but to those who have been trained by it, God is training us every single time he gives us a nudge back to the right way. Uh, every single time we get that convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit, it's training. Yes. The blessing of it is in the recognizable strength that he gives us to get through the discipline. Oh, yeah, absolutely. In fact, uh, you know, if you think about it, so sometimes uh, what Tom is talking about is sometimes the hand of discipline brings about our change of mind, our repentance, and yet we still might be facing the consequences of the discipline. In other words, the discipline might not go away immediately. If you think about it, that's how it happens sometimes. But God always gives us the strength to be able to handle it, right? Always, always gives us the strength to be able to handle it. So we're trained by it. I mean, how else are you going to learn not to touch the stove, right? If it's hot and it burns your finger, that teaches you not to touch the stove. So we need to be trained. Now, discipline, again, I'm telling you, this is grace and it's love. Proper discipline is always done in love. Always. Always. So when you discipline someone, you never want to discipline. If you're, a fa- if you're a parent, you never want to discipline in anger. Never. Do not discipline in anger. You want to discipline in love. In other words, the reason you're spanking your child's behind is because you want them to get corrected in their behavior. You're not trying to hurt them. Discipline is not punitive. You understand the difference? It's not punitive. And here's what's important. The, the things that I do where God disciplines me, I don't get anywhere near what I should have gotten for the punishment. You see what I'm saying? The punishment will be way worse than the discipline because the discipline is not intended to punish me. The discipline is intended to correct me and teach me. Right, correct me and teach me. That's exactly right. It says afterwards, after we've been trained, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. In other words, we, we, after we're corrected, after we're trained, and after we've, we've learned the lesson that God is teaching us, 
We're going to walk in righteous, righteousness, in his righteousness. We're going to walk in a manner pleasing in his sight. We're going to bear fruit. We talked about this last hour. Carnal believers, believers who are walking in sin, they do not experience the peace of God that surpasses understanding. If you, when you are carnal, when you're walking around and you're indulging the things of the flesh, your soul is in turmoil. You're rebelling against God and your soul is in turmoil. Now, you may not even be thinking about it because you're indulging in the, fle- the pleasures of the flesh. And so you're enjoying the pleasures of the flesh. But your soul is in turmoil. And you're going to come to realize it and you're not going to have the peace of God. So discipline trains us. Discipline corrects us. And what comes out of it? It yields. I love that language. It yields the discipline. The discipline yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness in our lives. Isn't that, isn't that what you want? Don't you want the peaceful fruit of righteousness? Yeah, and, and by the way, exactly, Jesse's exactly right. When, when you get to this place, when you get to the end of this verse, right, when you get to the place where you have that peaceful fruit of righteousness, be sure and thank God for the discipline that he gave you, right? It's, it's, it's not joyful but sorrowful, but thank him for the discipline. Because without that discipline, you might have wandered further off in the weeds. Who knows where you would have ended up? I mean, I still say, you know, looking at my own life, uh, you know, I've been down some, I've been down some crazy roads. I've gone down some, some places I shouldn't have gone. But I can count, you know, half a dozen times in my own life where I'm, I'm telling you there had to be a guardian angel or something because by all accounts, I should have not survived. <laughs> I should not have made it through. I did stupid things. And I should have died. Yes, sir. Yeah. <laughs> she said, she said, so I said, where would I be? I said, without God's discipline, where would I be? And uh, Marcia said in diapers. And I think I, I think she was talking spiritually. <laughs> spiritually, I'd still be in diapers. And that's true. We all need to be trained up. We all need to grow in our faith. Well, let's go ahead and close in prayer. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the, the blessings that you bestow upon us. There are too many to count. And one of the blessings that we have as your children is that we receive your loving hand of discipline. And Father, we pray that each and every one of us would have an appreciation for your discipline and how meaningful it is and how, how it points us in the right direction and uh, how it helps us to grow up in our faith. So we do thank you for that discipline. We ask that you would help us to walk in a worthy manner so we don't have to be disciplined. But thank you, thank you, thank you for giving us correction when we need it. Father, we also thank you for what we're learning about the temple, the picture of uh, a depiction of, of something that they wanted to do to glorify you, honor and glorify you. Solomon's building of the temple was all for the intent of bringing glory and honor to you. And so we thank you for the intricate details that are given, the beauty of the building, it's amazing in my mind to see how small the building is, but what an amazing uh, structure was put together uh, for the people of Israel to be, co- be able to come and worship you. And we thank you for what we can learn from that as well. Father, we ask now that as we have this time of fellowship upcoming, that it would be a blessing, that we would enjoy the food and enjoy the fellowship one with another, and that everything we do and say would be pleasing in your sight and bring honor and glory to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray all of these things in his most precious and holy name. Amen. All right.